Let us pray. For all things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, God, we give you thanks. We ask that the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts might be acceptable in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It is my pleasure this morning to welcome, to offer some reflections for us, members of our Green Up environmental team. This is a group that came together a few years ago, about the time I arrived, to start focusing on how we take care of the environment in faithful ways. So when we decided to do a, creation, a Stewardship of Creation Sunday, we turned to them as our experts to talk with us about this. You'll hear from three of them. There are some others who are here in the pews, Patricia Connors, Hattie McGraw, Joyce James, and also Joan McCabe, who is not with us this morning, but was at the Climate March in Washington last week. So I welcome Stephanie, Leanne, and Deb to share with us their thoughts on how we may be good stewards of this creation. In the beginning, God created night and day, sky and ground, sea and land, plants of various kinds, the sun and stars, aquatic creatures, birds of the wing, land animals, and evolution. In my beginning, church camp was a foundational aspect of my childhood. Camp Aldersgate, associated with United Methodist Church in upstate New York, is one of the first places where I learned about God's creation. My earliest memory at Aldersgate is when I was six years old, picking strawberries in the field across the way from our cabin. I remember having to bring my found prizes to my camp counselor to make sure that the fruit was ripe enough to eat. We were encouraged not to pick the berries too soon. I also remember the feeling of moss under my head as we rested in the woods, frogs in my hands as we learned about the pond, mosquitoes in my ears as we sang songs around the campfire, in the vastness of the starry sky. As the psalmist reminds us, praise the Lord, O my soul. Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. My absolute favorite animal is the orca, also known as the killer whale. Fun fact, while orcas are killers, top predators in the ocean, they are not whales, but the largest of the dolphin family. When I was a young girl, I was introduced to the movie Free Willy. Are you familiar with it? A young boy, Jesse, starts doing community service at an aquatic theme park and befriends an orca named Willy. Jesse, abandoned by his parents, overhears Willy calling out to his family in the ocean, abutting the park. Jesse realizes that Willy was taken from them and misses them. Events unfold so that Jesse, desperate to not let Willy die, steals Willie from his tank with some help from his foster parents and rushes to return Willie to the ocean, to his family. This movie was critical in my development of appreciating the world around me. I now refuse to think that animals exist for my entertainment or pleasure. Instead, I try to observe and value all living things because they are just that, living things. So often, in all that we do, we look for the value, weighing the cost versus the benefit so much so that we've lost the wonder value of the world around us. Did you know, in the dark, you can see a match from almost two miles away? Redwood trees can grow to be 300 feet tall. Blue whales can grow to be 100 feet long. 
The deepest part of the world's ocean is the Mariana Trench in the Western Pacific, with a maximum known depth of 120 redwoods end to end. Another of my favorite animals, Alicia chlorotica, is a sea slug that takes chloroplasts from its algal food and can actually photosynthesize, create energy from the sun. The natural world is truly amazing. But nature shouldn't have to be the tallest or the largest or do cool things to have value in today's society. God's natural world has value because it exists. How do you enjoy the natural world? Do you spend time observing that which lives around you? What's your favorite animal and why? Is it because it brings you value or is it because something about it amazes you? This appreciation of the natural world drives me to want to learn more about it. Brian and I are moving to Washington State in August so that I may apply to PhD programs in marine biology to research orcas and the impact that humans are having on their ecosystem. I wish to be a steward of creation. To me, that means acknowledging the right that other living things have to live and working to protect that right. In the beginning, God created. Who are we to destroy? Like Stephanie, I too have a deep-seated love and appreciation of the world around us. Mine was forged growing up in Minnesota, where some of my fondest memories are of canoeing the boundary waters with my church youth group. If there's anything that can match the haunting beauty of the cry of the loon over the open waters at sunset, I've yet to find it. Aware of environmental causes from an early age, I've been concerned for many years. My interpretation of God's call for us to have dominion over the earth, as we read in the scriptures from Genesis earlier, is that God has given us a precious gift, the earth and all its many living creatures that we are charged to be caregivers of. As I mentioned, although I've been interested in ecology and the environment for many years, what really triggered my activism was becoming a parent. A few years ago, the enormity of the problem, the fact that the next generations could inherit a world substantially changed from what I grew up with and might not ever have the chance to hear the loon call, made me realize that I had to get my head out of the sand and my butt off the sideline. So why the alarm and the urgency? That's what I'm charged with communicating with you today. It's a sobering picture, but while you listen, have hope. Change is still possible, and we have made some inroads. Here's a thumbnail sketch of the climate change problem from a mom, not a climate scientist. It's well documented that the Earth is warming. In the past century, the global temperature has increased by one degree Celsius. In fact, the hottest year ever recorded was 2014. Mm, but surpassed in 2015 and again last year. There's broad agreement from climate scientists that the wor this warming is due to human activity. The cause is burning fossil fuels. All fossil fuels, including coal, oil, and natural gas, contain carbon, 
and when burned, release carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Carbon dioxide acts like a blanket over the Earth, preventing heat from escaping our atmosphere, thus raising the temperature of the planet. As the temperature rises, so does the temperature of the oceans, resulting in ice melt. Close your eyes and picture this. If John Glenn were viewing the Earth from space today, instead of 1962, the polar ice cap is half the size. So, we know that warming has already taken place. The next question is, do we know how much warming we can tolerate? In the words of Jim Hansen, the preeminent climate scientist who worked for many years at NASA, if humanity wishes to preserve a planet similar to that on which civilization developed and to which life on Earth is adapted, research suggests that carbon dioxide will need to be reduced from current levels of a roughly 400 parts per million to at most 350 parts per million. This level would limit temperature rise to two degrees Celsius. This is the target that 114 countries have pledged to implement policies to reach in last year's Paris Accord. So by now, you may be asking yourself, what's the problem with warmer temperatures? It can get pretty cold in Boston in the winter, and a lot of us might enjoy a little bit of warmth. Many think the problems of global warming will be brought to bear only on distant oceanic nations, but that simply isn't the case. Rising sea levels will cause increased flooding and outright loss of land. One community in Louisiana has already had to leave their homes forever, and several coastal communities in Alaska are currently planning relocation. Boston itself is in line for significant sea level rise. However, perhaps unsurprisingly, low-income and native communities are most at risk. Increased temperatures increase the amount of water in the atmosphere, which leads to more severe cataclysmic storm activities. Paradoxically, however, increased temperatures result in drought in other parts of the globe, with resultant crop failure leading to food insecurity and famine. As a physician, I've learned a lot about the multifaceted threats of global warming to human health. For example, disease-carrying mosquitoes and ticks will extend their habitat into new territories, widening the spread of potentially life-threatening infectious diseases such as Zika and Lyme. Increase in the ozone level due to higher temperatures and longer, more severe fire seasons will worsen respiratory illness. Higher temperatures and extreme weather may lead to increased stress and anxiety, threatening mental as well as physical health. And this is just the threat to humans. We know that rising temperatures will significantly reduce the livable habitat of innumerable plant and animal species, contributing to increased extinction of our fellow inhabitants of planet Earth. <clears throat> So this is the problem that we're facing. As I've mentioned, significant change has already taken place, and we're halfway to the two degrees rise that the world has already agreed is what the planet we know it can tolerate it, which is why we must act fast. 
but I believe that we can succeed, and indeed we must. It appears that policy changes across the globe have already had some results. In the past two years, carbon emissions have stabilized for the first time in a century, which is a big and exciting change. However, the current US administration appears to be intent on undoing this progress. They have threatened to withdraw from the Paris Agreement, have already dis dismantled the Clean Power Plan, and have proposed draconian budget cuts to the EPA. Apparently, they interpret today's scripture differently than I do. Dominion as power over that gives us unbridled license to exploit. As Christians, I believe we are committed to being stewards of our earth, and I would encourage us all to push back on this exploitation. As Christians, we all have powerful and respected moral authority, which we can call on when we call out publicly to demand laws and policies that will protect our world. Making changes at a personal level is important, but to effect the shift we need to drive down carbon emissions, societal change is necessary. I encourage you all to call or write your leaders and tell them that you, as a Christian, demand positive action on climate change. Green Up will be providing ongoing suggestions for actions that you can take. Another hopeful front for change is that of divestment from fossil fuels and investment in renewables. I am tremendously proud that United Parish is taking this step and those of us who have investments through our workplace or privately can do this as well, giving corporations the message that we value the health of the planet. I believe that as Jesus has called us to care for the least of us, that means that I am called to speak out for the plants and animals who have no voice, who are valuable, as Stephanie described, precisely because of their existence. I am called to advocate for the poor and vulnerable who are most at risk from climate change. My faith also gives me the courage and the energy to devote myself to these efforts. I know that if David could slay Goliath, if Moses could lead the Israelites out of Egypt, then we can stand up to misguided government policies corporate interests, and business as usual. I do believe that with God, all things are truly possible. Thank you, Stephanie and Leanne, for immersing us in the wonder of creation and for better understanding what's at stake for all of creation with the challenge of climate change. To wrap up, I'll try to offer some personal, practical, and optimistic perspectives on stewardship of creation that come from my experience working in the environmental and energy field, as well as my Christian faith. I'll admit it, I'm a nature lover too. <laughs> my grandparents had an apple farm in Cheshire, Connecticut, which was my idea of Eden. We lived in the next town, and this time each year in May, my family and I would help my grandparents host 
a hayride and a church ham and bean supper on the farm. Everyone in the parish would come and enjoy the apple blossoms, reveling in God's creation. It was a lot of work hauling the trestle tables outside, bringing the church folding chairs out to the farm, making a meal for 150. But we all pitched in and got the job done. Church is like that. Sometimes it was a bit chilly to eat outdoors, but it was always breathtakingly beautiful and fragrant. My love of the land and outdoors led me to higher education and environmental studies in those heady days after the Earth Day, original Earth Day in 1970. Air and water pollution was the focus of my work when I got out of college. With several decades of public activism, political will, and technology, the Boston Harbor, the Great Lakes, and many urban harbors are now healthy and swimmable. It seemed impossible, but it was doable. These days, I work at a consulting firm that specializes in energy efficiency and making buildings greener and healthier. We focus on affordable multifamily housing, which houses the folks who have the least among us in terms of economic prosperity. Heating systems, lighting, and low-flow toilets save the residents a lot of money and conserve energy and water. Green materials without toxic chemicals improve air quality and reduce asthma incidences. Lately, we do talk with building owners about making their buildings not just efficient, but climate resilient. Design solutions and operational practices can make them better able to withstand the flooding, ice storms, power outages, and heat events that will likely come with climate disruption in the coming decades. We plan for the worst and hope for the best. I'm optimistic, though, too, because I've seen the exponential pace at which solar and wind power has come to be cost-effective at the household and commercial scale. You've all been to Home Depot and seen how LED light bulbs have taken off and come down in price over the last decade. Now everyone can save 60 to 80% of electricity used for lighting in their homes with bulbs that are made without toxic materials like mercury. That's a big improvement. And all over the world, architects, engineers, and business people are making headway with greener buildings and energy technologies. They're applying these ideas to developed cities, but also to the developed world that has limited infrastructure. Think about India, a country where there are still several hundred million people without electricity in their homes. At night, children trying to study and mothers who, sew, who are sewing to raise money for their families have to use kerosene lamps, which have terrible fumes, toxic fumes that they shouldn't be breathing. Now the costs of solar technology have decreased dramatically so that they can use rechargeable solar lamps and solar panels and actually leapfrog from the fossil fuel technology to clean energy technologies. This is good for people, the environment, and the economy. The folks designing and disseminating these technologies may not say they're spiritually motivated. They're probably motivated 
financially, but they still are respecting and stewarding God's creation in their inventiveness. Resilience, adaptation, those are scientific terms, but they're so apt in looking at the way people of faith and Christians from Easter, Easter onward have had to function. Our Hebrew scriptures and the gospel are full of stories of regular people who are resilient and adaptable and take small steps or big leaps of faith in the name of God. We are genetically inclined to be adaptable and resilient. It's in our God-given nature. We're hardwired for it. While the global to local challenges are real and huge, and our time and resources are limited, there is no reason we can't come from a place of inspiration rather than desperation in daily life. And once we choose to act, we find there are small, even convenient ways to be stewards of creation. We don't have to do everything, we just have to do something and care enough to try. Reducing what we buy and use is the first goal. Next, looking for opportunities to buy things that can be reused several times and many times. Finally, when reducing and reusing doesn't apply, recycling is possible. Our Thrifty Threads is a great place to recycle clothes. And we need to engage, as Leon said, our political leaders in their civic role as stewards of creation, participating in advocacy and online campaigns and let them know how voters care about climate change or what's happening at the EPA. And then there's covenants. There's a word, it has legal and financial meaning, but also relates to promises we make with God. A few decades ago, my grandparents and uncle put a restrictive agricultural covenant on their lovely apple farm in Cheshire in part for property tax reasons, but also as a promise that the farmland would be used for agriculture and open space in perpetuity. That was an intergenerational covenant. They were good stewards of their land. Even though someone else owns the farm now, another family, I can still bring my grandson to pick apples there. People who live in the area can buy fruit locally and celebrate those blossoms in springtime. I'll close with the words of Wallace Stevens, a poet that many of you may know that has stuck with me over the years. After the final no, there comes a yes. And on that yes, the future depends. As stewards of creation, as covenant makers, as resilient and adaptable people who believe in resurrection, let us look past the final nose and live for the yes, each by each and as a community. Amen.